Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 13, Final Judgment. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. If you ask the average non-believer to describe what they think the Christian God is like, there's a fair chance that the topic of judgment will come up pretty quickly. Or perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker that reads something along the lines of, I like Jesus, it's just his followers I can't stand. For a lot of people, Christian is synonymous with judgmental, unfortunately. There's a couple different responses to this. One is to double down, to say that judgment is an unavoidable aspect of the gospel because God is completely just. Another response is to avoid the subject altogether and focus on the loving side of God instead. After all, judgment is a bit of a dirty word in today's society, which on the whole espouses religious freedom and tolerance, even if not everyone lives this out. It's a lot easier to focus on God's love. But what if there's a third way? A way to recognise fully both the justice and the love of God. I believe there is, and that a lot hangs on the way that we understand judgment and justice. Some of this comes under the idea of atonement, which we'll talk about in a later episode. But for now, let's consider some of the more general references to judgment in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we read that it's appointed for mortals, us, to die and then to face judgment. In language that's echoed by the line of the creed we're looking at in this episode, John chapter 5 speaks of God giving authority to Jesus to judge and that the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The book of Ecclesiastes closes with the line, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now this verse plunges us into the conversation around faith and works. Are we saved by faith alone, or is there also some kind of requirement for right living? The scriptures seem a little ambiguous on this. On the one hand, Paul writes to the Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. On the other hand, what about the following passages? In Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Or James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Even the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 suggests that judgment is made on the basis of something that we've done or not done. In this case, caring for the hungry, the strangers, the imprisoned. 
And even the Ephesians passage I started with, talking about salvation by grace through faith, goes on to say that we are created for good works. Things get more complicated in Paul's words to the church at Corinth. He says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. So with this ambiguity, how do we make sense of judgment? Well, our guests have done a lot of thinking on the matter. In fact, Ben argues that judgment is the best thing that can happen to us. Let's hear him elaborate on this. The concept of judgment implies a separation, a discrimination. If I judge one ice cream to be better than the others, I'm actually taking that one apart and separating it from the rest. The Gospel of John, which is especially concerned with judgment, the judgment that Jesus brings, consistently presents it as a division, light as opposed to darkness, life as opposed to death, belief as opposed to unbelief, and so on. When we speak of Jesus judging the living and the dead, we mean that he will ultimately perform that discriminating act of separating the light from the darkness, the good from the bad, the righteous from the wicked. Here's the catch, though. I reckon it's easy to fall into the temptation of thinking that this is two groups of people. Some of us, I assume myself and the people I like, we are all going to be the righteous ones, the children of light. And then there's the other people we don't like, and people who aren't Christians and so on, they will be the baddies. Jesus will separate some people from the others. I don't know about you, but I actually think that's a quite problematic and unrealistic way of thinking about the last judgment. After all, who are the goodies and who are the baddies in human history? Which of us, if Jesus had to separate good from bad, truth from error, light from darkness, which of us would be 100% on one side of that line? Do you see the problem? Each of us has within us a mix of good and bad. I have some good motives, but they are often tainted by self-interest, but they're not completely evil motives either. I have some evil or wicked desires, which can still be colored or tainted by virtue as well. Which of us is completely on one side of the line or the other? Well, nobody. If you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares, the whole kind of problem in that parable is you can't easily separate one from the other. What do you do? Well, the wheat and the tares is about the last judgment. You wait till the last judgment. Now, the message that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, I think is, is wonderfully good news as long as I don't think that it's about dividing the human race into two 
portions. Rather, it's about dividing me. There are good things in me which I can't even fully separate from the bad, and I don't have to. I can actually relax a little bit about my own complicated inner life because one day Jesus will come and separate whatever is dark in me, whatever is wicked in me, whatever is false in me, separate it from the true. And my judgment will be my salvation. My judgment will be my purification. My judgment will be when the light that is in me fully appears, no longer mixed and contaminated and confused by all the other things. The, the wheat will be separated and the weeds will be burned. Those weeds aren't just other people. Those weeds are, are, are me and those parts of me that I cannot fix for myself. I can't heal myself, but the last judgment will be my healing. In the end, we can take comfort in Paul's words in Romans 8. Last episode, I mentioned briefly that Jesus intercedes for us. In the broader context of that verse, we're encouraged, if God is for us, who is against us? Nothing separates us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that's the key. And the way that we can hold these two truths together. That God is both loving and just. Judgment is not the same as salvation. Here's Ben again on the good news of judgment. If I had to go to a court today and stand before a judge, I would be quite scared, right? But what if the judge was my brother? What if the judge was my friend? That would give me a slightly different attitude. The good news of the gospel is we're not just judged by God. We're not just judged by some impersonal superior being who stands in judgment over us. We're judged by Jesus, our brother, Jesus, our friend, Jesus, our savior, Jesus, the one who has come to reconcile us to God. He's the one who separates the wheat from the tares. He's the one who will judge us in order to reconcile us fully to the love of God. To change direction, this line of the creed also refers to the second coming of Christ. And there's a lot of debate in Christian circles over what that second coming entails. When will it occur? What will happen? Jesus himself said that only the Father knows the day and the hour of Christ's return. Yet a lot of energy has been poured into interpreting the apocalyptic imagery in the book of Revelation and in Daniel to a lesser degree to predict when that second coming will be and what it will look like. The idea of the end times is fascinating to many. It's the subject of plenty of film and fiction. I'm, I'm sure you can think of examples. I asked Alistair what we can know about Christ's return. Well, it is going to be unexpected. And therefore, we can't really say very much about it, apart from the fact that we need to be alert. And therefore, I suppose, um, if I was preaching a sermon, which I won't do, don't worry, if I were to preach a sermon, I would say the key thing is to be prepared, simply to, in effect, regard each day as potentially the last day we have. And obviously, that does make you prepared, but actually, it also makes you attentive to just what a gift it is to be alive. It makes you much more appreciative of this world, realizing it might suddenly come to an end. During this COVID crisis, there are many people who've said to me words to this effect. It suddenly made me take each day at a time and thank God I'm alive. And I think that that is a very important point. It's about, in effect, not simply the Christian hope, but also this realization that each day is precious 
Let's make the most of it. It's an invitation to, in effect, do something useful, become something better in the time frame we have, even if we, though we don't know how long that's going to be. Even though the Bible does not tell us the day or the hour, it does give us a metaphor for the return of Christ. A wedding feast. In Matthew 25, a parable likens the wait for Jesus' return to waiting for the bridegroom. Revelation 19 talks about the wedding of the Lamb, who is Jesus. This image for the second coming tells us what we need to know. It's not an occasion for fear or dread, but a joyful celebration, one that we prepare for in expectant hope. What will the end times involve? It's about much more than the judgment of humankind. In fact, it's nothing less than the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And the relationship of the old to the new is also a theme in Scripture. Look up Jesus' words in Matthew 9 for an example. But before we get too carried away in expectation of a new heaven and earth, we need to consider what happens to the present heaven and earth. If they're simply to be destroyed at the end times, replaced by better models, then what's the point of caring for our present world? In fact, some interpretations of the end times argue that we shouldn't care for the environment. We should even hasten the world's demise, as this will in turn speed up Jesus' return. I'm not supporting that kind of view here at all. I think it's premised on a flawed understanding of the goodness of creation and that it devalues non-human life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that in Christ all things, not just humans, are reconciled to God. Redemption applies to the whole of creation. How does this present earth relate to our hope of redemption? I love the way that Tom Wright turns the typical expectation of going to heaven on its head. Instead, there is some sense of continuity with the present, even as God breaks into history in the eschaton in a radical way. It's paradoxical, but here is how Wright puts it. What you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbour as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Heaven, or the kingdom of God, is not something elsewhere that we go to when we die. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come on earth, and this is a real hope. Heaven and earth will be renewed under the sovereign rule of God. So the world we have now matters. In another quote, Wright says, that people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. We'll pick up some of these ideas in later episodes when we look at the scope of salvation and our eternal fate. But as we close, I invite you to reflect on the promised return of Christ. How is your life shaped by the expectation of Christ's return. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, 
honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.